Luke 15. If you happen to be using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 522. Page 522, if you're using those black Bibles, we're going to be considering Luke 15, just the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 7. We've already read it together. So let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we look at this text of Scripture. Lord, help us now in these moments to understand Your Word. May Your Spirit take it and apply it to our hearts. And Lord, may we understand it better, but more, more importantly, may our wills be motivated by the Word and the Spirit this morning. Help us, Lord, to change to be more like Christ through the things that we hear. We pray these things in Your Son's precious name. Amen. Some of you are old enough to remember a multi-ethnic group of children standing on the side of a hillside singing together. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You remember this? Young people, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Well, that's a, that's a big ambition. I, uh, I used to be a choir director, and I will tell you that it's hard to get 40 people to sing in any semblance of harmony that's, you know, presentable, let alone teach the whole world to sing in perfect harmony. And buying the world a Coke, well, that's quite the proposition. What would it cost to buy the world a Coke? I wasn't satisfied to wonder. I had to look this up. So just the population of the United States, around 322 million, with the average cost of a Coke at 199, that alone would cost 640.7 million dollars just to buy the U.S. a Coke. If you scale that up linearly, which is not necessarily safe to assume, but if you if you took a sliding scale and extrapolated that out across the whole world, it would cost somewhere around $7.38 billion to buy one Coke for everybody in the world. And then we would all be happy and peaceful, and right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what the song implies. But, 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 but I mean, you think about it, that really the song is, is intended to engender within us this desire to, to do something great for the world, well, when we think about wanting to change the world, that can be, that can be overwhelming. Uh, particularly as we think about believers, about the world that is around us, we should want to make even more meaningful change than, than just wanting to buy the world something to drink. And so when we think about making gospel change, that can be overwhelming. Making a spiritual impact in the world, how do we do that? Well, when we think about it in terms of everyone in the world, it, it can, in fact, be daunting. But that really brings us to a simple reminder that is our theme for the year and is, is emphasized in the text that is before us, and that is the value of one. We learn from this text of Scripture that God's grace rescues individuals. God's grace rescues individuals. Now, before we get into the text, let's just step back for a moment and consider the context. We're always 
informed by the context when we consider a text of Scripture. This is really a trilogy. Chapter 15 is actually three parables that are really intended to function as, as one. And so in the introduction, when you see in verse 3, he spoke this parable saying, most commentators believe that when he's speaking of this parable, he's actually speaking of all three. It's kind of like one parable in three parts. And so it starts off in verses 1 through 7, which we read together, a story about a lost sheep. That's where we'll focus our attention this morning. And then in verses 8 through 10, we see a lost coin. And then in finally, we see a story in verses 11 through 24 about a lost son, which we often refer to as what? The parable of the, the prodigal son, right? And then Jesus does something interesting because now there's an epilogue on the prodigal son, which is intended to really drive home the point of all three of these parallels, right? So there's the prodigal son, and then that's followed by the account of the son who stayed home and was now jealous. And all of this is in a context. When we look at the parables, we, we can't just look at them in isolation. We have to understand what is Jesus teaching. What he's teaching is predicated on, it, it is prompted by what happens in the immediate context. So that's the the black print, if you're using a red print Bible, right? It's the introduction there in verses 1 through 4. This occasion of Jesus' message is, is compelling. So verse 1, all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near him to hear him. Now, do you understand that these were the ones that were the rejected by society? These were the ones that were the outcasts. They were ostracized. They, they felt like they, they were not accepted and, and to be fair, these were people who were notorious for some pretty bad things. The, the tax collectors were, were hated because they were, in large part, thieves. All right? But they were particularly hated because they represented the oppression of Rome. And so it wasn't just the fact that they were not altogether honest. It was the fact that this represented the very things the very thing that the Jews chafed under. And then sinners is kind of a general category for, for uh, the, the seedy elements of society. Those that, that, that in our day, we might, we might be walking down the sidewalk and we might kind of move over to the other side of the sidewalk. Those that, that, were, that were not only poor and, and dirty physically, but those who were known for a a wicked lifestyle. Well, because of that, they had upon them this kind of stamp of rejection. They were not accepted. They were not, not welcomed into the community. And, and when the, the religious teachers, these Pharisees and scribes, see that they are flocking to Jesus, they are disturbed by that. That bothers them that Jesus is welcoming to these ones who are sinners. So that's the context. And in fact, what Jesus tells us all through chapter 15 is particularly compelling because he is coming to save the lost. And that's the very point that he makes, that God's grace rescues individuals. And so it's in response, specifically verse 2, to this criticism. The Pharisees and scribes complained. 
saying this man receives, the idea is he, he receives to himself, he embraces sinners, and he eats with them. And so Jesus doesn't answer them. He tells them three stories. And the first of them is this one that we'll consider this morning, the parable of the lost sheep. So as we consider the fact that God's grace rescues individuals, we first see the reason for God's grace, which is the fact that man's lost condition requires God's grace. It requires God's gracious intervention. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we've seen, we see a lost sheep, and then we see a lost coin, and then we see a lost son. Here is a sheep who wanders off, and that's what sheep do. That's why they have to have a shepherd. They, they wander off even to their own demise. Because guess what? Sheep are dumb. Right? The, the, the sheep don't realize. Now, now someone, I won't mention that it was my wife, was looking at these pictures last week. I think it was my wife. It was looking at these pictures and, and do sheep normally have tails like that? So I started doing some research and I found out that actually the popular breed of sheep in the Middle East in, in, uh, in ancient times and even still today is called the broad tail sheep. And their tails can weigh 10 to 15 pounds. It's like, I had no idea. So all prompted by these pictures that we have up here. So, so Jesus, that has nothing to do with the message. It has no spiritual relevance. Uh, but I uh, just thought that would be interesting for all of us who are going to have to look at these pictures all year. So, so this shepherd in the account goes out to look for this sheep who, who may not even realize that he's lost. He doesn't realize the dangers that are around him. He doesn't realize that the wild animals, the potential of getting caught in a thicket, the, the potential of falling off a cliff. He doesn't understand any of these dangers. Yet, the shepherd goes out to look for him. He's wandered off away from the shepherd, his source of protection. This, by the way, is why faith and repentance go together. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, when we're lost, we don't fully recognize our own lostness. We don't recognize our lost state. Now, God in His grace and His mercy sends His Spirit to pour out conviction on us to to help us to realize that we are lost. But without that, we're just happy in our lostness. We're just content wandering down this path that may have a wolf ending at the end of it. But the gracious shepherd goes out and seeks the lost sheep. When we're lost, we don't recognize our lostness. In fact, trusting Christ, trusting that what God says is true, that His way is better than mine, is inextricably linked to repentance. Because I may see in the Word, I may, I may hear the truth that I am wrong, but I do not naturally want to recognize that. And so for a person to be, to be made new, to be transformed, to, to be in Christ, they must first say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. It may not always feel like that. I, I may not always think that, but I know that to be true because you have said. Do you see now how faith and repentance have to go together? 
because we're that dumb sheep that the shepherd needs to seek out. There was a problem that Jesus is addressing. He's addressing these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, and this is exactly what he's getting to because they don't see their lost state. I'll often say, sometimes people need to be saved from their sin, and sometimes people need to be saved from their goodness, right? We, we sometimes comfort ourselves, and that's exactly what the religious leaders of the day were doing. Well, look how good I am. Look how much better I am than everyone around me. I must have God's favor. And Jesus actually, I believe what, what he says there um, in the last part of verse 7 is intended to be irony. It's intended to be kind of a a tongue-in-cheek. He says, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Who needs no repentance? Well, that doesn't, that's not, there's nobody that doesn't need to repent. So I think what Jesus is doing there is saying, yeah, you guys over there that don't need to repent, I'm here to save the ones that are repentant. Jesus saves sinners, but Jesus saves a specific class of sinners, repenting sinners. And so that's, ironically, the very lesson that these religious leaders need to learn, that they too are lost. And so the application is manifold, but the obvious one is we need Christ. We are lost without him. Now, I dare say I'm talking to a group of people, most of whom have at some point come to Christ in faith and repentance. You've turned from your sin and trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But it is good for us to be reminded again and again that repentance and faith is entry into life with Christ, but it is the life that we then live from from that point on. If you've never come to Christ in repentance, you too are like this lost sheep who who needs a Savior, a Savior who, praise God, has sought us out, has gone after us in our own waywardness and our own failure to recognize that we are lost. Once we are believers, we have to ask ourselves from time to time the question, are we like the Pharisees? Right? Do we get in this, this model where we think, well, I'm, I'm really good. I'm okay. Jesus comes to save not those who say, I'm good, I'm okay with the way I am. He comes to save those who admit that their own way is wrong and in faith turn to Him. So we've seen the reason for the need, the need for God's grace because man's lost condition requires it. Then we see also in this passage God rejoicing in the rescue of the lost. So we see now God's grace rescuing and the response to that. We see it in verses 5 and 6. When he has found it, that is that sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. We see it again in the parable of the lost coin there in verse 9. 
And when she has found it, when she's found this coin, she calls her friends and her neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. And then finally, in the parable of the lost son, we see in verse 22, the father said to his servants, when after the son had come home, after they were reconciled, he says, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. He throws a huge festival. He throws a gigantic party, a feast in celebration that the son has come home. Do you see the joy that is in every one of these accounts over the reconciliation of those who are separated, those who are lost? And my friend, that is the attitude of God towards sinners. He calls them to himself. He pleads as we ought to echo the plea to come to Christ. And there is rejoicing when a sinner comes to repentance. We see this throughout the New Testament. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In our natural state, we tend to think of God as exacting and and wanting to rob us of our joy. But what He offers us in Christ is far better than the temporary joy of this world. And it takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to believe it, but God does all things for His glory and our good. He saves us from sin, not so He can merely take from us, but so that He can give us what is so much better than what we can grasp onto for ourselves. Do you understand the heart of God who longs to see sinners come to repentance? And if you and I are believers this morning, we should, we should be the same. When we see this parable of this one that was lost and is now found, a sheep and a coin and a son, our hearts rejoice. Knowing that this is merely a picture of the deeper meaning, the, the, the more impactful meaning, the spiritual value that is here. And that really leads us to the fact that we must long for We must pray for, we must diligently work for the conversion of souls. It is the business of every believer to have the heart of God in this matter that that there are lost souls, there are lost sheep, there are lost coins, there are lost sons. We're not like the Pharisees, oh, we're better than them. We were lost too, but for the grace of an almighty God. But as we share the heart of God, we long to see that which is lost reconciled. We must pray for it. We must witness for it. And our hearts should long for it, just like the heart of God. We should long for the rescue of those that are lost. And when they do come, oh, how our hearts rejoice. How glad we are because this one who was lost is now found. 
God rejoices in the rescue of the lost. We see here also another theme that is particularly emphasized in the first parable here. God's grace rescues individuals one by one. Do you see that in the passage? I mean, do you see here in verse 4? Which of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them? Now, in the ancient world, sheep were of tremendous value. They were, they were financially um, a mainstay. Not just in and of themselves, but they continued to produce, right? Wool and milk and then eventually meat. And then no more wool. But, but that's, I mean, that, that were, they were an economic engine walking around on four legs. And so the value of, of a sheep was tremendous. So it's kind of like, you know, if you own a car lot, right? You've got a thousand cars out there and somebody steals one of them. You're not just going to go, eh, we won't bother to do a police report. No big deal, right? It's still of tremendous value. So, so this financial value that is given to us here in this parable is, of course, to reflect on the value of a soul. But those hearing Jesus' parable would have understood this perfectly. Okay, yeah, you've got 99. You just pin them up, make sure they're safe, and then you go out into the wilderness to find him. That's what you do because it's of value. Even though you've got 99 more, the one is of value. Do you see it again in verse 7? I say to you likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than the 99 just persons who need no repentance. There's joy in heaven when the one is found. And so I think for us this year, from this passage, it's important for us to clarify our call by realizing that one matters. That's really what we're intending to do with our theme this year, because we do, we get overwhelmed. We're like, discipleship, evangelism, there's just, where do we start? Where do I get a hold of it? May we be reminded by this simple little story from Jesus that one matters. So let's make it our effort to, to yearn for and to pray for and to work towards one. So our theme we talked about last week is for us to concentrate on what does that look like. The first two are things we talk about all the time, winning one. That is, that is giving the gospel to someone, having that conversation with them where, where we explain to them the the plan of salvation, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, how they can be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. Patiently, lovingly, prayerfully. And make it your prayer. God, give me one. Allow me to be an instrument of your grace to see one person come to the knowledge of the Savior. I was just talking recently with someone, not in this church, someone else who was saying, boy, since I got saved a few years ago, I just want, I just want everybody to know what I know. I just want everybody to experience what I've experienced. I said, as well you should. That should be the attitude of the Christian. But, but Lord, I may not be able to win 
everyone, and you're not going to be able to win everyone. But Lord, let me just win one. Let me share the gospel and be, be that tool of your grace in the life of someone else. Win one. We have a responsibility to our fellow believers, our, 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 our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in this body, we have an obligation. And we emphasize at this church kind of that cellular level. We call it life-touching life discipleship, right? The fact that you ought to be pouring yourself into someone else, investing in them spiritually. And usually that means spending time reading God's Word together, studying God's Word together, teaching them, praying together. Investing in one person, leading someone on their spiritual journey. You say, well, I'm only a few steps down the path myself. That's okay. There's, there's always someone that you can bring behind you. So, Lord, give me that one person. This year, make it, make it your prayer to have that one person that you are investing in. That one person that if we walked up to them and said, who is your spiritual mentor? Who is the person that is teaching you spiritually? Who is the person that you can reach out to and you know that you can share everything that's going on in your heart with? Who is that spiritual mentor for you? Will you be that one? Which really leads us to the, to the next one, and that is follow one. So there's always somebody behind you, but there's always somebody ahead of you too. And by God's grace, he's called us not just to follow Christ, but to follow Christ locked arm in arm with fellow believers. So who's your spiritual mentor? Lord, help me find that person that I can learn from, that I can glean from, that I can follow after, that I can be taught by. I'm praying to win one. I'm praying to, to lead one. And I'm praying for that one that I can follow. Because one matters. You look around and think, well, we're a small church. There's not a lot we can do. So we have a corporate goal, too. And it's just one. May God allow us in the next decade, not 10 years, it's a decade because it's got to follow World One thing, right? It, may God allow us in the next decade to send one from our midst to be a gospel ambassador in a place that needs it. So a missionary, a church planner, someone who is taking the gospel to a place that there's a need. May God allow us to be that mission agency, that, that sending church for one person who's going to faithfully preach the gospel. This actually is the theme that we'll pick up as we move into the second half of the book of Acts. My apologies, if you could all please silence your silence your cell phones. Um, but uh, as we move into the second half of the book of Acts, we get to the missionary portion. And we see the activity of the local church as those are sent, the, the missionaries are sent out from the local church. So that's our prayer as a church as well. May, may God use us as a church to, to send someone to be a gospel ambassador. Who is your one? Who is that one that you're going to win? Who is that one that you're going to lead? Who is that one that you're going to follow? And then we ask ourselves as a church, who is our one that is going to represent us as a church? One matters. Narrow your focus. Uh, clarify your call this morning and this year by praying for one.
Forgive me if you've heard the story before. It's been retold a number of times, but I think it's a good illustration for our consideration this morning. You've perhaps heard the story of the older gentleman who was walking down the beach one morning after a, a, a storm, and because of the way the, the tide had gone and the storm had gone, there were, there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of starfish that had been washed up on the beach. And, and it, the sun had not quite come over the, the rids yet, but when it did, those starfish would all be kind of baked in place. They, they would die. And as this man is walking down, he's surveying all of these hundreds and hundreds of starfish that are out on the beach. He looks off in the distance and he sees a little boy throwing things into the water. He gets closer and he realizes that, in fact, what he's seeing is this little boy picking up starfish and throwing them out into the water. Well, he says, son, son, there are hundreds, if not thousands of starfish out on this beach. You're never going to be able to make a difference. The little boy looked at him with a glint in his eye. He reached down and he picked up another starfish. He threw it out in the water. He said, made a difference to that one. You may not be able to change the world. You may not be able to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony or to buy the world a Coke, but you can make a difference in the life of one. So, teach someone to sing. Buy somebody a Coke. More importantly, invest yourself in someone else. Win one, lead one, follow one, send one. Father, we thank you for your word, for the simple reminders in it, and help us even this morning to get back to the basics, to be reminded that it is important that you have called us to invest even in just one. Thank you, Lord, that you as the good shepherd reached out to us. And you helped us, you saved us, you drew us to yourself. 